Good morning, church. We have the pleasure of hearing from Reverend Glennon Thompson. I'm going to invite him up, and then I can pray for you, if that's all right. Um, Coming up. Thank you, Gabby, for reading the word. Didn't she do so good? She did so good. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you today for an opportunity to hear your word again. We thank you for Reverend Glennon Thompson, and we pray you bless him as he speaks to us, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And we just pray blessing also over his church at Jarvis Street Baptist. We thank you for the loan of this man of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am delighted to be in your presence, and the last time I was scheduled, I was unwell, and so I'm grateful to be among you this morning. To attribute the greatest possible importance to Jesus Christ, Hebrew commences with a carefully crafted and programmatic statement about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And in this opening part of Hebrews, the exordium or the introduction, the writer develops some of the major themes that are to be found in Hebrews. He begins by telling us that in time past, God had spoken through the prophets in various ways, in diverse ways, but in these last days, in this eschatological hour, God has spoken through Son, through Son, the distinctiveness of that revelation in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2b and following, he begins to describe Jesus Christ. And in fact, there are seven descriptors of Jesus Christ. The writer describes the Lord Jesus as the heir appointed by God, the agent of creation. He is described as the effulgence of God's glory. I'm using the New King James Version. He is described further as the exact image or representation of God's nature. He's said to be the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, by his powerful word that he made purification for sins, and then he took his seat at God's right hand. These are seven characteristics of Jesus. I want to not try to develop the seven, but rather one, the last, where it says that after he had purged our sins, after he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This notion of the exaltation of Jesus, the ascension and the session, Jesus seated at the right hand of God, I want to develop with you in the time remaining. And I want to suggest that this idea of Jesus seated at the right hand of God conveys at least three fundamental truths. First of all, it refers to Christ's cosmic or universal sovereignty, his cosmic sovereignty. Seated at the right hand of God, the enthronement of Jesus, secondly, speaks to his sympathetic advocacy, that he represents us 
sympathetically. And thirdly, it speaks of his salvic efficacy, that is, his saving power, his ability to save and to save ultimately. So, first of all, this enthronement at the right hand of God speaks of Christ's um, cosmic sovereignty, of his universal reign. The, The writer says he sat down. And verse 3 is a participle clause. The main verb comes in sitting down. In other words, after he has made purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's very interesting that the author of Hebrews bypasses the stages of resurrection, ascension, and he goes directly from making purification for sins that are on the cross directly to his seated at the right hand of God. He bypasses resurrection and ascension, not because they're not important, but because he wants to draw attention to the central truth that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. As you read the Old Testament, you begin to recognize that the right hand of God as a metaphor, God is spirit, God does not have physical hands and eyes and so on, The right hand of God refers essentially to the power of God. It is the right hand of God, the power of God, by which he redeemed Israel from Egypt. And to to sit at somebody's right hand in the ancient Near Eastern world referred to sitting at a place of dignity and honor and privilege and power. So to be seated at the right hand of God of God is to be seated in the highest place of honor, dignity, and power. But it is also interesting that the text describes Jesus as sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, God is described as the majesty on high. It's a circumlocution for God. It's another way of saying God. He's sitting at the right hand of God. But the scriptures describe him as seated at the right hand of the majesty of God or the majesty on high. And this notion of the majesty or God on high refers in at least Jewish literature that the, the, the height that God occupies is often described as his throne. And so when the writer says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's not simply saying that he has been given dignity, which is true. It means that he has been given the highest position, that he's sitting on the very throne of God. And you will find that there are five references in Hebrews to Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. Here in verse 3, in chapter 1, verse 13, in chapter 8, verse 1, in chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 2. And in two of these instances, Jesus seated at the right hand of God is described also as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So those two references, and Hebrews 8, verse 1 says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is Seated, we have the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The right hand of the throne in the, of the majesty in the heavens. And in chapter 12, we read further, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So what the writer begins to tell us is that Jesus, whom he has been describing, this one who has made purification for sin, has been exalted to heaven and is seated upon the very throne of God. That, of course, means that in ontologically, in terms of the being of Christ, that he is God. You see, he can't occupy the same kind of glory that God the Father occupies unless he himself ontologically, in his being, is God. But the text says there are two ramifications of that. First of all, it means he's superior to angels. Who, who do you think, of all the creatures that God has made, who do you think is the greatest of all God's creatures? They said, well, us? No. Angels. Angels are above us. We are made lower than angels. But Jesus now, in verse 4, has been given a name or has inherited a name as son above the angels. And if Jesus then is exalted above the greatest of God's creatures, then he must be exalted above the Roman emperor and every other power in the universe. It means that Jesus Christ is exalted above angels. But there is also another implication of his exaltation to the throne of God. It also signifies, as you read in verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, that indeed the Lord tells us, and the angels should worship him. But to which of the angels, as he said, sit at my right hand till you, and make your enemies your footstool? Well, he's exalted. But in, in the earlier passage, in the earlier part of chapter 1, we read that the angels worship him. The angels worship him. And what that means then is that Jesus Christ is entitled as God not only to be viewed as the greatest and supreme, but he's entitled to our worship. He's entitled to worship. You know, you, you see that in verse 6 because it says when chapter, Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So not only because Jesus occupies the throne is he greater than angels, but he is worthy of angelic worship. Now, if, if Christ is worthy of angelic worship, the highest of God's creatures, then he's worthy of our worship. And that is very interesting then in chapter 1. You see this exalted Christ who is worthy to be worshipped by angels. You come to chapter 12 and you have this magnificent vision of the, the church that has come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. The, the writer proleptically looks to the future and he sees the the exalted people of God, you and I who have been transformed and saved. And he sees us joyful with God the judge at the center and Jesus Christ at the center whose, whose blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. You see, what, what Hebrews tells us is that Jesus is exalted and he's sovereign and he's worthy of angelic worship and he's worthy of our worship. But secondly, and even more briefly, this notion of Jesus at the right hand of God speaks not only of his cosmic sovereignty, it speaks of his sympathetic advocacy. You know, in chapter 8, verse 1, it's a very interesting chapter. The, the whole chapter is magnificent. 
and I, I commend it to you for your perusal at your own leisure. But the writer begins chapter 8 by saying, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see, he depicts Jesus as a high priest that we have. You notice that in chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews, it begins to say that after he had made purifications for sin, he sat down. And this language of purification for sin, we're going to revisit that very quickly, refers to Jesus' high priesthood. So I said to you that the, the introduction of Hebrews begin to tease out many of the main themes that are later fleshed out in the book. So when he says that he made purification, he's referring to Jesus as priest. But when you get to chapter 8, verse 1, the writer says, everything that I have been saying to you from chapter 1 up until now is about this main thing, that we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, in the heavens. He's saying, and I think it, is, it bears note that the high priesthood of Jesus Christ is a central theme in Hebrews. But the writer focuses on the present geography. In, in, in Hebrews, spiritual geography matters. Because the writer not just wants us to know that we have a high priest and see D.F. Mould, a former Church of England New Testament scholar, says that there are two I haves in Hebrews. One of them is here in chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a high priest. The other is found in chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar. There are two major I haves. We have in Jesus a great high priest. And we have an altar, a place where we can come in our needs. My dear friends, the writer wants us to know that we have in heaven a sympathetic Savior. It is of, it is of particular importance that Jesus was made like us and endured sufferings and made strong cries to God, that he was made like us in every way without sin, that he might be able to understand. You and I will never be able to criticize God and say, you don't know what I feel, and you don't understand my pain, because our God in the person of Jesus became flesh and suffered temptation without sin, and the Bible says that he learned obedience in chapter 5. He learned obedience through his suffering. And the writer wants us to know that, that what is so amazing is, is that Jesus Christ in his humanity, in his perfect humanity, sits on the throne of God and therefore identifies with us. Our bodies are not to be diminished and dis disrespected. Because Jesus Christ did not get rid of his physical body. He took it to the throne of heaven. So that you and I, when we think of God, must think of a God who is like us in the person of Jesus Christ, who understands us. You see, in Jesus being raised to the right hand of God, it speaks of his 
sympathetic advocacy. He represents us. He represents us. The Bible says he makes intercessions for us in chapter 7. He makes intercession for us. And his intercession is based, you know, the Old Testament high priest would go into the, the most holy place once a year with an ephod. And in this ephod, this kind of apron over his chest, he had the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on gemstones. That was to, to, to indicate very physically, very real, that, 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 that he was one who made intercessions with feelings. He, he wore their names over his heart. And you and I have a Savior in heaven, though he is the king of the universe. Nevertheless, the writer says, we have such a high priest who ministers in the sanctuary in heaven on our account. He's king, and yet he is our servant, our minister. He ministers of a new covenant. He brings on his... And by the way, let's be clear. That Jesus' intercession in heaven is not pleading before the Father. He's not bending down and groveling and saying, Father, please help my poor children that left behind on earth. If you read Revelation chapter 5, you will note that, that Jesus' intercession is his very appearance in heaven as a lamb slaughtered. In other words, it is his blood that speaks for him and his finished work. But very rapidly, as my time draws to a close, I want to suggest to you, thirdly, that Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of God not only speaks of his cosmic sovereignty, not only of his sympathetic advocacy or representation of us, it speaks of his salvic efficacy, of his saving power. The writer says, after he has made purification for sins, he sat down and the reason he sat down is, is fleshed out for us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, where the, the writer there says that the city, this Jesus being seated is in a sense the sign of mission accomplished. You know, when I think it was in the Iraq war that dear President Bush declared mission accomplished. But the war went on for many, many years. It wasn't mission accomplished. But this is true, mission accomplished. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, we read, but this man, after he has offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. And, you know, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 may be seen as the... the the theological heart of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 9, it develops this theme of Christ dying on the cross and that his death was very different. His offering was very different from the Old Testament priests because year after year, they kept on offering sacrifices, blood sacrifices. But as the writer tells us in chapter 10, that the, the, the offerings, the sacrifices of bulls and of goats of animals could not remove human sin. And so the high priests of old stood and ministered. They stood year after year repeating the same sacrifices that could not save. But Jesus, after he has offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down. Sat down. 
because he doesn't have to offer a second. His only sacrifice, shedding his own blood, taking his own blood into heaven itself, was sufficient for our salvation. It is the death of Jesus Christ that saves us. And the writer would go on to say that his death not only restores human destiny in chapter 2, but it delivers, gives us freedom from the power of Satan and from the fear of death. It opens for us this sabbatismus, this entrance into God's Sabbath rest. It cleanses the conscience. Not only does the blood of Jesus cleanse our sins, but it cleanses the conscience of the guilt of sin. That's the point made in Hebrews chapter 12. It opens for us a new covenant where we will no longer be saying to one another, Know the Lord, for every man will know the Lord. They will acknowledge him, they will love him, they will obey him. Everyone who belongs to the new covenant will be forgiven of their sins. These are some of the blessings that comes from this once-for-all sacrifice, the efficacy of Christ's death. There are many gains that have been made in history that have been lost by subsequent generations. You think of Alexander the Great, who controlled territories as far as from Macedonia to India, from Greece to Egypt. But those territorial gains were lost over generations. But you see, the gains that Jesus has won for us on the cross can never be lost because the writer tells us in chapter 7 that Jesus comes from a different priesthood, from the priesthood of Melchizedek, who represents an eternal priesthood. And the writer says in chapter 7, because he has the power of an indestructible life, that is, because Jesus has been raised and never dies, he can therefore administrate the blessings that he has won for you and for me. I could go on to develop this theme of Jesus at the right hand of God. What I'm trying to argue is simply this that his presence on the throne of heaven signifies his sovereignty. He is reigning over all our lives, over all of history. It signifies this idea of sanctuary, that we have in heaven a high priest, a place where we may go with all our needs. And that it refers, Jesus being raised, points not only to sovereignty and sanctuary, but also to sacrifice that final sacrifice for our sins. Very rapidly, what must we do with this? I suggest to you that you and I are to respond in obedience and worship of our sovereign Christ. As humans, we think that sovereignty and power belongs to those who have the largest armies, the strongest alliances. But true rule and true reign belongs to Jesus Christ who has been exalted to the highest throne. It was his before, but he has inherited it now as a gift in his incarnate state as the Son of God. Michael W. Smith captures this idea of Jesus' sovereign reign. He says, above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, that's who Jesus is, above all. And you and I are called to obey him and to worship him. We must kiss the son lest he be angry with us. 
We must submit to him who possesses supernatural power over supernatural enemies. We must acknowledge his lordship. We must submit ourselves to him. I would like to say to you, my dear friends, that this Christian life is not a game. We are playing for keeps. And what is before us is eternity. As I get older, I begin to understand how brief life is. There was a time when I had lots of hair, even an afro. And I don't know where it went. They tell me that there is life after, after hair loss, but we are, we are breaking down. We are falling apart. We are growing double chins, and we have crow feet with our eyes. We are breaking down. And even many of you are young and beautiful, but the way of man is like me. We are breaking down. What I'm arguing is eternity is before us. And it's vitally important that we know that we are not in charge, but that our king is in charge, that we trust him and that we submit to him. Secondly, we must focus on what we possess and not what we do not possess. Much of our hurt and disappointment in life is all the things that we don't have. And I think if you are honest, you, you, know, you can think of the many things that you would wish you have and you don't have. But we have a high priest. And that means we must come near. We must draw near to him and come boldly because his throne is constructed on grace. His throne is called in chapter 4 a throne of grace. And because we have a high priest who bids us come, we must come and pour out our heart's needs. Tell him about our marital problems. Tell him about our aches and pains. Tell him about our hurts and disappointments and our failures and pour it out before him because he's able to help you. He's in the highest place. He's in the control center of the universe on the throne of God and he loves you. And finally, my friends, it means that you and I must rely only upon, rely only upon the finished work of Christ. I would say to you, I have no hope for tomorrow and I have no hope for the future than that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. There is no hope in this world to come before God and plead that we have been good and that we were able to please him. Our only plea is that Jesus loved us and died for us and paid it all, all on the cross and is risen to secure the benefits of his salvation. May God help you and may he help me to trust only by faith, repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.